This is They Create Worlds, episode 31, an epic game. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will delve into the mysteries of Potomac Computer Systems, otherwise known as Epic, Epic Games. That's right. The company that started at roughly the same time as the id guys that were getting going and used kind of a very similar model and uh, went on to, in some ways, even greater success. We talked last time about how that early 90s period was kind of the last time that you could be one or two independent guys getting together and making some cool tech and founding a company. And we talked about how id was kind of the last expression of that. And it was, but it, they weren't alone. There were a couple of others getting started at roughly the same time that were doing some of the same things. And Epic was one of them. Now, we all know Epic from more or less their legacy and what they currently do today, Unreal and Gears of War. That's right, particularly the Unreal Engine. They don't really do very much game development anymore, but that Unreal Engine is used by just about anybody and everybody in the business on something or another as a, as a middleware. It is really, really true, and it's why there's so many games that have what I like to call the Unreal feel to them. And for some games, this really worked well. For others, not so much. I think I may have mentioned before that I really don't like my Unreal Tournament mixed with my tribes. Right. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's, it's middleware, so a lot of companies use it and then put their own modifications in it. It's not meant to be one-size-fits-all out of the box, so there are variations, but at the end of the day, anything that's made with Unreal is going to be fairly similar uh, in look and feel and appearance. And right, some genres that works better for than others. But of course, the entire idea of middleware is just something that had to happen in the video game industry really once development costs and more importantly, development time became such a an expensive and time-consuming commodity because we're at a point now where if you really try to do everything yourself from scratch, you can do it, but it's going to take so long and so many people that you have difficulty actually releasing games. And we've talked before, this is exactly the problem Japan's been having because there's very little use of middleware in Japan, though the latest Kingdom Hearts is actually using the Unreal Engine. But they've released so few games in some of the AAA franchises like Final Fantasy because they keep trying to rebuild everything from scratch every time they start a new project. And even though they're starting to cop to the need for middleware, or at the very least, game engines that they share between multiple projects in a generation, it's just the prime example of why you need something like the Unreal Engine in today's AAA environment. Yeah, and it's not to say that most games out there need to have Unreal. A lot of the indie scene has people using not the Unreal Engine. 
they run their own or they use another engine entirely. Or they use Unity. Or they use Unity. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes. It is kind of fascinating that they've managed to achieve such dominance with AAA games by just the virtue of having such a versatile engine. So really, where did it all start? How did Unreal, how did they become sort of the engine guys? Well, it really goes right back to the founder of the company, Tim Sweeney, and the way that he's always taken kind of a tools-first approach. So id, obviously, to get back to our subject last time again, obviously John Carmack was very good at creating engines, but he would create the engine. Romero would create the tools that he needed to harness that engine to actually build levels. And then when they got through with it, they'd kind of start all over again. Carmack is the ultimate technologist. Every time he does a new engine, he just wants to figure out what the next huge leap forward is and just start over from scratch. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. So, I mean, they licensed their technology, those Wolfenstein and Doom engines, and especially the Quake engine found their way into other games at that time. They would license that technology, but they never really had great tools to go with it, and they never stuck with one engine for very long. They would improve one engine until Carmack decided he had done enough with that engine, and then they'd move on to their next engine. So you didn't really have a cohesive development environment that you knew was going to be stable long-term. But Tim Sweeney has always taken a tools-based approach to things. Before he would start creating a game, he would have all of not just the engine, but also all of the tools integrated directly into the engine that he needed to shape his next game product. And that's why he is the one, and the people he worked with, whom, of course, we'll talk about as well, came up with an approach that allowed them to have something that was all-inclusive and iterative rather than clunky parts that didn't fit together perfectly and let's just throw the whole thing out and start from scratch again in, in two or three years. So where does Tim come in as far as Epic Games being founded? Sure. So Tim Sweeney, you know, the, his early story is the same story of a thousand bedroom programmers. He's the nerdy kid. He's the kid that isn't as socially adjusted but he's super smart, and he loves delving into how things work. He gets a computer in Apple II. He learns to love the machine, and he learns to conquer the machine, and he makes games. Then he gets his games out there. I mean, that's a story that repeats over and over again. But he also had enough of a business sense. I wouldn't call him really a businessman. Today, there are other business people that kind of take care of the administration of the company and the licensing of the technology. He's a pure technologist, but he had an understanding that he could do his own thing and keep control of his own thing. And the platform he chose to do that is the same one that Apogee, its publisher, chose to do that through, which is shareware. So he started out by figuring that he would create a computer consulting company. He was, he was a guy that was always doing work on the side to kind of earn a little extra money. Uh, he was going to school at the University of Maryland, 
as a mechanical engineer. He knew the computer programming stuff backwards and forwards. He was self-taught on that. So he didn't think there would be any value in pursuing a computer science degree because he figured, I've got that. He already has the knowledge. There's nothing that an educational facility would be able to teach him, especially at that time. Sure. We're talking the early, the late 80s, early 90s here. Right. And even when I went through and got a computer science degree, how much that really helped me in my career. Right. So he was getting a mechanical engineering degree is what he was doing, but he was very good at the programming. And he had worked at a, a hardware store for kind of minimum wage, and that wasn't so great. Then he got a business mowing lawns, and he was making a little more money, but he wasn't making huge amounts of money, and it was still a lot of work. And so he thought, well, you know, why don't I use this computer knowledge that I have, and I'll found a consulting company and do, like, database work, build little custom databases or whatnot for clients. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the initial name of the company, as is, is you teased at the beginning there, was Potomac Computer Systems, because at that time, he wasn't thinking in terms of games. He thought he was going to be a computer consultant. Uh, Potomac, his family, is from Potomac, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. So that's where the Potomac part comes from. And then computer systems, because that just sounds like a nice, reliable computer consulting company. You want to go there and have them do your computer business. Right. So he's starting to play around with databases. And this is kind of where the whole tools first approach comes in, even at his very first game, because he's kind of fooling around with database stuff and tools for databases. Then he gets partway through that and he's like, you know, this actually would work pretty well as a game engine and game creation suite. So then he starts getting involved and turning it into kind of a, a set of game tools. And then he's like, you know, I should really make a game with, with these game tools I've made. Hmm. And so that's basically how his first game came about. And the game was called ZZT, just the, the letter ZZT. It was kind of a text-based, kind of ASCII character-based kind of dungeon crawl type game. I mean, it's not a roguelike. We, we don't want to call it a roguelike because it's not that level of, of hardcore crazy. But, but as far as the UI goes, is that more like what it would be for what you would have as far as a net hack or... Right, it was very the, the similar. UI is, you're running around as some sort of ASCII symbol, an at sign or whatever. Right. I mean, you can definitely draw parallels between it and NetHack, absolutely, which is, is a full-on roguelike. So he started creating this game, this, this RPG-type game with ASCII characters. And then when he was developing this game is when he first learned about Apogee Software and what Apogee Software was doing through Shareware and also learned about Apogee's first game, which was a very similar type of game called Kingdom of Kroz. Kroz being Zork spelled backwards, so you can kind of see where that inspiration was. Definitely. So he actually incorporated a few uh, similar things to what were in Kroz into his own game. He borrowed from it. He wasn't just slavishly copying Kroz. I mean, he had his own game that he had started even before that. But that was kind of the first thing. And he talked to Scott Miller a little bit, kind of learned a little bit about what Scott Miller was doing in the shareware scene, but he is never interested in publishing through Apogee. He really wanted to release his game on his own through shareware, which is what he did. And so obviously the name Potomac Computer Systems isn't going to be a great name 
Not for gaming. Not for gaming. So Business software, yes. Gaming, no. So he needed a new name. He liked that Apogee name. He liked that idea of something that was at the very pinnacle, that was at the very top. And he wanted something that he felt would evoke a similar feeling of eliteness or hugeness or Perfection. whatever. That certain je ne sais quoi. And so he settled on the word epic. Hmm. He just thought epic. That sounds like a great word for denoting something that's larger than life, right? <laughs> it's epic. We are epically going forth with our games. He wanted his company to feel like it was big. Really, really big. Mind-bogglingly big? Exactly. He wanted to evoke the feeling of hugeness, of his company being something very large and sophisticated and, and whatnot, which it wasn't, because at this point, it's, it's just him, right? Yeah. And so he decided it shouldn't just be epic games. It should be epic mega games. Mm. And this was just to make it seem larger than life and huge and, and all of this. So epic mega games is the name he came up with for the company. That's pretty much the start of it. ZZT, I believe, was actually released under the Potomac Computer Systems name. Mm -hmm. He hadn't quite changed it over yet. The game was released in 91. But once he started getting some hits on that and getting some income in, he decided he needed that better name. So in 1992 is when he changed the name to Epic Mega Games. ZZT did all right. It didn't do great, but he was making maybe $100 a week on it. Yeah, that's enough for beer money. Well, that's enough to live on, really, when you're a college student. Oh, yeah. You know. He ends up, actually, he's putting a lot of effort into the company. He actually ends up not graduating. According to interviews with him, he ended up one credit short. Really? When he says one credit, I don't know if he literally means, like, one credit or if he means one class. But the point is, he was this close to graduating. And he decided not to, because by then he felt like the, the Epic Mega Games thing was going so well for him that that's what he was going to do, and there was no point in completing the degree. It's kind of a shame. You always hear, like, you get so close, you put so much effort, and you just need to have one more class or one more thing to be done just to say you completed it. Sure, but, you know, there's... He's certainly not the only one to not complete college that went on to do great things in the video game industry. And I or think, the computer industry. Or, yeah, well, right. Uh, Bill Gates, Harvard dropout. Uh, mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, college dropout. <laughs> I mean, obviously. So, Thank school, kids. That's right. Well, it really is different today, right? So back then it was the Wild West. The entire idea of personal computers even even getting into the, the late 80s, I mean, by the late 80s, it's probably a little different, but the entire idea of personal computers were so new that even if you had a school that offered a computer science curriculum, and it took longer than you might think for a lot of schools to offer a computer science curriculum. And this is something that I even observed when I went through my own schooling. If you're good with computers, you're not teaching it. Right. So there's a disconnect between what a university can offer somebody that's interested in the computer field during that period of time and what you actually needed or what was actually useful to get engaged in that field. 
And I'm sure that's still partially true today, most likely. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure because I, I didn't go through that field. I'm sure there's still a disconnect to some degree. But the thing is, now I think that there are so many people clamoring to get into the field that you need ways to, to weed people out and, to do, and a degree is one of them. So unless you're like a super duper genius, mm-hmm. I, I think these days you probably need a, a degree in something for most jobs. But back then it was the Wild West. The computer science degrees weren't offering much of use anyway. It was all about doing database programming on big mainframes and mini computers. And, you know, a hotshot could kind of learn everything, could be self-taught back then because the systems were simpler and mm-hmm. the languages were simpler. So you could kind of do that. So if you were getting a good thing going in the computer industry generally, or just in the computer game industry specifically, then well, there wasn't necessarily a need to go on. There wasn't necessarily a need to finish that education. Certainly Tim Sweeney and his long and successful career has, has never been hurt by the fact that he didn't finish that mechanical engineering degree that he started at the University of Maryland. True. So he has EZT going. Mm-hmm. And it's doing okay. He thinks he can make a go at this, but it's not a big hit. His next game was the game that really put him on the map. And that was a game called Jill of the Jungle. Jill of the Jungle. That's right. Not George of the Jungle. Right. And it's and it's not it's not even based on, say, a George of the Jungle kind of world, except with a female protagonist. But he wanted specifically a female protagonist because they were so rare. And so Jill of the Jungle was his next game. It was his Mario clone. It was a Mario-like game. I mean, it wasn't a straight-up clone, but it platformer. was cutesy kind of Mario-style platformer. And this was kind of the zeitgeist, again, in the shareware scene, because this is not long after the id people have done Commander Keen. There's a new understanding of what can be done on... APC in terms of the scrolling and whatnot. And so you get a few people all at kind of the same time here, like Id and also Apogee's doing their own things with like Duke Nukem, not Duke Nukem 3D. Duke Nukem actually started as a side-scrolling series before it was a 3D series with Duke Nukem 3D. You have several companies all coming to the realization at once that, yes, you can make Nintendo-style games on the computer. And you know, it's really interesting. This is this is not the first indie scene. I mean, I would call people typing in listings, doing type-in listings to computer magazines in the late 70s and early 80s to be kind of the first indie scene. But it's interesting because this is an indie scene. Mm-hmm. And they're doing kind of the same kind of things that the indie scene started doing in the early days of, of the modern, what we think of as the indie scene today. Except in this case, it wasn't retro. You know, when people were making games like Castle Crashers and Limbo and Braid and Cave Story, kind of the vanguard of today's independent scene, that was all kind of retro throwback stuff because they were going back to all this side-scrolling, platforming, beat-em-up, what have you. They're still fun, but they're, from a coding standpoint, a lot simpler to make because you just need an engine that can do a 2D or very basic 3D. You don't need to do the AAA, high-end graphics, model everything. Right. And so they saw that they could create these kind of games and fill a vacuum 
that AAA game development was not filling anymore because they weren't making these kind of games. And so it was a retro thing then. But this indie gaming scene, the shareware scene, was actually based on doing a lot of the same things. And they were filling a hole too. It's just that in their case, the hole was, for the longest time, nobody thought you could do these fast side-scrolling kind of games on an IBM PC. Mm -hmm. And that PC market, as we talked a little bit about before last time, was in the United States, very different in Europe. Uh, That's the caveat I always like to throw in because I don't want our European listeners to be like, that's not true at all. And it's like, yes, we know it's not true for you. But for us Americans, it it was true. Mm -hmm. That was a market aimed at an older crowd that wanted those more sophisticated kind of games. So even if they had realized that you could do quick side-scrolling action games on a PC, the mainstream PC companies in the United States would not have necessarily been interested in doing that. So again, nobody's doing that kind of game, and it's simple enough that one or two or three people can make it. And so that's why you have all of these companies moving to that kind of game on, at the PC at the same time and creating this indie shareware scene like it and Epic. Makes sense. All right. He's making game. He had mega Epic games. <laughs> when did he start bringing in people? So he starts bringing in people pretty early on. And when I say bringing in people, I don't mean in the sense of forming the company around them. Mm-hmm. Epic remained a scattered company for years and years after its creation. What do you mean by scattered company? There was not a, an office that was Epic Mega Games. And in that office, you had all of the coders and all of the marketers and everybody together making product. It's not like an id situation where they all formed a company together, went off first up to Wisconsin, then down to Dallas or Mesquite outside of Dallas and had uh, a company there where they were the ones making all the games together. Epic was scattered. He was a shareware publisher. At first, he was just publishing his own games, but he very quickly started getting submissions from other individuals. Hmm. And so he ended up publishing the games of a couple of other people. And then those people kind of all started collaborating with each other on various other games that were all released by Epic, but they're in different parts of the world, literally not even different parts of the country. They're all in different parts of the world. And they're really sort of communicating via BBSs and the early days of the internet. Right. And phone and fax and all of those, all of those technologies that people had to use before, (laughs) before they had the internet. Exactly. Amazing that you can even run a company that way. There's people who are still trying to figure that out to run a company today. Oh, well, sure. And, and in this case, it's because it was very simple. Because, I mean, you did, have, you did have Sweeney himself, and, you know, he was located in a place, but they're just making these simple shareware games. So it's not like you need a lot of, of pieces to it. You can have this person over here making a game and then just submitting it to you, and then you get it out into your shareware circles. You know, it, it wasn't a complicated business, but people started coming in pretty early on. And one of the first people that he brought in really uh, for the company was a guy named Mark Rain. You may or may not remember that name from Masters of Doom because he plays a minor role in the id story. I think I recall the name, but I don't remember in what context. Sure. So Mark Rain was 
a business guy that saw a lot of potential in these shareware things that were coming out and thought that they would do very well in retail as oh. retail releases as well. Okay, so he was trying to get some of the itch stuff into retail. Yes, he made a deal with a company called FormGen, which was kind of a budget company in Minnesota, mm-hmm. to release uh, some of the early King games and, and whatnot uh, in retail. He was a you know a good talker and a good deal maker, so id brought him in on on a provisional basis to be the president of id mm-hmm. and then with wolfenstein three d he started negotiating retail deals for Wolfenstein without consulting the rest of the id people mm. and they felt that that was overstepping his authority. He wasn't supposed to be going out and making deals without their explicit permission. And so they fired him. They decided that that wasn't a good fit. And so after he was dismissed from id, he went and called on Tim Sweeney to see if he could perform a similar kind of service for Epic Mega Games. And that worked out much better. Mark Rain is still there today. Really? Okay. Yes. That worked out much, much better. And the day, literally the day that Mark Rain came in in 1992 and made his pitch in all of this, Tim Sweeney told him, you know, I just got this game from some guy named Cliff Blazinski, mm-hmm. and I think this is a guy that we should pursue. Cliff Blazinski, who went for a while, I don't think he likes the name anymore, but went by Cliffy B, mm-hmm. is of course the well-renowned designer of the Gears of War series. Mm. And he was getting his start in the same way, he, he had the start of a million bedroom programmers. He is a guy that was always very inquisitive as a child and was always very into gaming as a child. His father tragically passed away when he was 15. His father was just 47 at the time. I mean, his father died very young. His mother moved the family to Los Angeles and was working as a restaurant manager to make ends meet, and it was his mother that bought him his first computer. Wow. And he wasn't a particularly, in his own words, he wasn't a particularly proficient coder or artist, but he was, again, like I said, the inquisitive guy that likes to know how things work and likes to pick things apart. And so he wanted to kind of master this whole game design thing anyway. Mm -hmm. He put some games together, and then he submitted uh, a game around some of the shareware guys, including Epic. And so Mark Rain kind of made the deal with Cliff Blazinski to get Cliff to start creating product for Epic. The thing that Cliff did right there in the early days that was their biggest hit then so far was a game called Jazz Jackrabbit. Okay. It's a side-scrolling game that is kind of a, a shoot-'em-up kind of side-scroller starring a, a jackrabbit, Jazz, mm-hmm. that is a very Rambo-like character, presented as a Rambo character. The reason that Cliff did this game is that kind of the Commander Keens and the Jill of the Jungles of the World, these were takes on Mario or takes on the Nintendo style of platforming. 
They're mm-hmm. not in any way direct clones of Mario, but it's kind of it's in the a same little, family. Right. It's a little the action's a little slower paced. It's a little cuter, all of that kind of thing. It's the Mario thing. Accessible. It's family friendly. Jazz Jackrabbit was deliberately created to be the Sonic the Hedgehog of the PC world because Cliff saw that nobody was doing that. Something, and again, it's not anywhere near a Sonic clone in terms of the actual gameplay, but something faster, something edgier, something that felt a little more mature and a little less cutesy. Well, you said that there was shooting going on. Right. Wouldn't that be more like Contra? No, because you're still talking about the speed element that's coming from a Sonic, and you're still talking about a character mascot or an anthropomorphic mascot. Okay. Because you're starring a Jackrabbit. Again, Commander King has shooting in it, too. It's not about them being one for one. Commander King is Mario. Jazz Jackrabbit is Sonic. It's about them being platformers and kind of the style that they evoke mm-hmm. in terms of their their gameplay intensity or speed or lack thereof or cuter versus edgier, etc. And it's much more platform intensive than Contra because while Contra in, in certain stages has you occasionally having to do annoying jumping and whatnot, mm-hmm. so that's more pure run and gun. I mean, Jazz Jackrabbit has lots of platforming going on alongside it. A lot more complicated. Yeah. It's like doing the waterfall level all the time. (laughs) Sure. That became their most successful game so far. And again, they're still very much in the shareware world. And it's just these people collaborating in various parts of the country. And in fact, jazz was programmed by a a Dutch guy. Mm -hmm. So Cliff Lazinski in the United States is doing the game design and the programming is being done in Europe. Wow, that's pretty good. And they're transferring it over mm-hmm. the internet or uh, well, direct not, phone line. Right, not really the internet at this point because... Yeah, you didn't really have it so advanced. We're, we're still talking about the 92, 93 time frame here. This is... Right. The World Wide Web is only just becoming a thing. Jazz Jackrabbit comes out finally in 1994, mm-hmm. but obviously it's being developed in, in some of this earlier period. Imagine transferring the files via mailing a disk. Right. Oh, found a bug. Got to mail me a new disk. Yeah, so, you know, Cliff in California, and then the Dutch guy whose name was Arjun uh, Russi. I'm probably horribly mangling that name, but the point is, these are the guys that are doing it, and it's, you know, it's it's basically, you know, you say Contra. I mean, Mega Man would be a, a better comparison, just okay. because Mega Man has more of that platforming and, and shooting, still shooting mixed together. but with that speed and that edginess that you get from Sonic. Mm-hmm. So it's really more of a that kind of Sega style of game than that Nintendo style of game, which is what Commander Keen and Jill of the Jungle both kind of were. So that's one of the big things that they have going, and that's the biggest one. The other game that does very well for them in this time period is one called Epic Pinball. I may have played this. Oh, very good. Maybe. It's a pinball game, obviously. And Epic Pinball was created by their other prodigy, which was James Schmaltz. Mm-hmm. James Schmaltz was up in Canada. So again, I mean, it's got this very international thing. And he had been programming on an Apple since he was 12 years old. This is another one of these prodigy guys. And so he created a game called Solar Winds, 
And this game, it it had kind of a, a strategic element to it, moving around a map, and then it kind of had a, a shooting element to it when you're actually in, in combat with spaceships, and it has you kind of balancing different... Uh, different energies amongst different systems, kind of in a similar way, I guess, to kind of a an X-Wing or a TIE fighter did it, though not... Real-time or...? Oh, yeah. Yeah, real-time. It's a it's a shooting game. So it's that's kind of what Solar Winds was. I've never played, at least not uh, to my knowledge. But that's uh, kind of a, a combat game, but with a, a little bit more complex stuff thrown in on top of it. That game was sold through Epic, and... They were very impressed by that. And then they were trying to sign a pinball game from a Finnish demo scene group. The demo scene is something that could have its own multiple podcasts. Probably we won't get into what the demo scene is right here, but it's basically people that largely in Scandinavia and the Low Countries, the Netherlands and whatnot, a few people elsewhere as well, but that's kind of where it was based that were more into doing kind of complex graphical displays and hacks just uh, to show off their coding skill than they were in actually creating a, a game. So they'd create little demonstrations, little demos. So almost like a coding equivalent of a portfolio for an artist. Yeah, yeah, in a manner of speaking. I mean, they were just doing it to to do it and to get notoriety mm. rather than as, I can do this. I have this skill mm-hmm. and here's a collection of sure. my accomplishments. Right. You know, they weren't doing it to get hired, but they were just doing it to get noticed. But mm. yeah, exactly. And then over time, some of these demo groups decided to, to get into game development, actually, on top of that, certainly the, the most famous of those would be DICE, mm-hmm. makers of the Battlefield games. They started as a demo group in Sweden. Okay. And so there was this, and they also made a pinball game. This is not the pinball game that they were going after, but Tim Sweeney and Mark Rain decided to go after this pinball game that they had seen that this Finnish group had made. And they were unsuccessful in getting them to sign with them. They decided Mm. they didn't want to. So then they were like, well, fine, we'll make our own pinball game. And so they had James Schmaltz make the pinball game. So Epic Pinball was the result of that. Epic just being the, the name of the company, you know. Right, the publisher. Not that the pinball game was, like, epic, just that the, the company was epic, and that came out in 93. So Epic Pinball comes out in 1993 and is a pretty big hit. Jazz Jackrabbit comes out in 94, and it's an even bigger hit. And we're talking in terms of, of the shareware scene and whatnot. We're not talking about Doom-sized level of hits. We're not talking about Mario-sized level of hits. Right. We're, we're just saying these are games that are doing really well and they're selling really well. As far as a low-level indie scene, we're doing this shareware thing. They're able to pay the bills. And so then in 1994 is when they come up to kind of the next level. And that is when they start working on Unreal. Mm. It doesn't come out until 98. So this was a very long Yeah, I remember Unreal period. being a thing. Yes. So basically... You'll notice that they're making side-scrolling and top-down games. They're making 2D games. They're making console-style games just in the PC market. That's largely because Tim Sweeney, it never occurred to him that he would be able to make a three-dimensional texture-mapped game. 
certainly he was aware of Wolfenstein and he was aware of Doom and he was aware of kind of these amazing games that had come out. But he didn't realize that he could do them. He thought the technology would be beyond his grasp. That's right. And so then James Schmaltz is working on a kind of riff on a game called Magic Carpet, which was a British game. Oh, yeah, I like that one. Mm -hmm. It was 3D, known for its particle effects, which were Mm -hmm. very advanced for the time, and the terrain deformities that you could cause that were very advanced for the time. That was a pretty sophisticated game. And so James Schmaltz is working on this riff on it, and Tim Sweeney is making the tools for it, because we've talked, Tim Sweeney is a very tools-first kind of guy. And it was in the process of doing this that he realized, you know what? We really can, if we can do this stuff for this game. I mean, that's not a first-person shooter kind of game, but we really can make one of these 3D shooters that all the kids are talking about these days. He really felt that this was something they should get into because obviously he knows how well Doom's doing. He knows how well Wolfenstein had done. And so that is the genesis of the Unreal Project. Basically, everybody moves up to Canada eventually to, to do this because it's, it's during this project that becomes clear that this is something so complex that they can't be spread all around the country. We need to be able to communicate real time. Right. So Epic doesn't really have a base of operations at this time. James Schmaltz is up in Canada, and a lot of James Schmaltz's buddies are working on this game, too. So a lot of the people are up in Canada. So everybody just kind of moves up to Canada (laughs) to to get this game done. And James Schmaltz and Cliff Blazinski are co-designers on it. Tim Sweeney's doing engine stuff. I mean, this is is kind of the first time that it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. We're getting a business building, and we're going to do the business. Right, right. But I mean, Epic isn't officially located in Canada at this point. It's just that everybody kind of congregates in Canada to get this done. Epic Mega Games is still at this point a very amorphous concept. Mm -hmm. I mean, it obviously exists. And you have Tim Sweeney and Mark Rain doing business stuff and deal making and, and shareware distributing. And you have guys like Cliff Blazinski and James Schmaltz doing games. But it's not like an id. It's not like you can point to a place and be like, there's Epic. It just, it really, uh, to my understanding, didn't exist in that way. But this is at least something that gets them all together in the same general area as they're working on this game. And so they didn't have an actual dedicated building. They just sort of like, oh, we're all in this area in our own homes and we'll meet at the coffee shop to talk about stuff. I think so. I mean... I could be I could be wrong. It could be that there was some little place, but no, I really think I'm pretty sure Tim Sweeney was just basically running things out of his house still at this point. And <laughs> out of his parents' house, it's it's funny. There's an interview he gave in 2009. He said that his first game, which was the ZZT game, he still sells copies of it as of 2009. Mm-hmm. Still sold copies of it every so often and you know, since that was his first game, it was actually the address that was given to send money to was, was his parents' house at that time. So he was in college. He says that his parents, because they still live there, uh, parents still get uh, orders every so often. And his dad, who's retired now and doesn't have anything better to do anyway, you know, we'll, we'll ship all those orders once a week. Hmm. I don't know if today in 2016 he still gets any orders, but in 2009 there would still be a very, very small number 
of orders trickling in and and his father would fill them because that's the address that was in the shareware. That's pretty neat. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the company is still this kind of very amorphous idea, but Unreal is really when they start to come together as a company. It's a very long project. It takes four years. But the tech in it is just so good. It's visually stunning. And it has a lot of these kind of big outdoor areas, too, because Carmack is doing some great things with Doom, with Quake, but it's all kind of corridors and interiors. You know, it opens up into big rooms sometimes, but a lot of it is corridors and whatnot. With Unreal, you've got these kind of massive outdoor locations that are part of it as well. And it's and very... a seamless transition between outdoors and indoors. Right. So it's it's just got this, you know epic feel to it mm-hmm. and it's stunning to look at and the thing is it's unreal yes it's unreal and unlike an id where the tools in the engine are things that kind of come together separately everything's integrated here because it's that tools-based approach first it's because he was working on tools for james schmaltz's previous game that he even came up with the idea of doing this game and doing this engine in the first place. Okay. So everything is integrated. It is so easy to modify the game and make new content for the game. And of course they release stuff to the public that allows them to, to modify. The engine looks so great and it's so easy to use that they start getting requests from other we people. We want to use it. And so they're like, sure, why not? And so that's kind of the beginning of the engine business. Like I said, Tim Sweeney, he always felt that the it approach was wasteful. He said that himself in interviews. The it approach of making a really hot engine, but then just throwing that away and starting from scratch on the next really hot engine, he felt that was wasteful. For someone like John Carmack, who I think is more interested in the challenge of the new thing, that was the way to go. And you can understand why he would want to go that way with his personality. But Tim Sweeney, he's got a bit of the businessman in him. Mm-hmm. He kind of sees that that is a waste. Why throw the whole engine out each time? Let's Why, improve it. Yeah, let's improve it. Let's iterate on it. Like I said, id licensed the Quake engine. Mm-hmm. Id licensed the Doom engine. It's not like Epic invented the idea of licensing an engine, and I'm sure id probably didn't either. Uh, off the top of my head, I I don't know what came before it, but I'm pretty sure other people had licensed their engine out before too. But none of them had this idea of just sticking with it and improving and improving and improving and having the tools for building things so integrated into the fabric of the engine that they just work hand in hand brilliantly together. Right. And that's a really important thing if you want to sell that technology out there to the general public or developers as opposed to the general public. Sure. you need to have really good tools to take advantage of that engine because me as a game developer, I want to be able to develop something, but if I don't know how to properly take advantage of your engine or I have to reinvent the wheel in order to properly take advantage of your engine, there's a limited versatility there. Mm-hmm. And since Tim says, tools first, I am developing tools that can do this thing I want to accomplish a goal. Let's make a tool that makes this goal doable. And then let's have the engine do that so that we can integrate this tool, accomplish the goal, and have the engine facilitate it. Right. 
Exactly. And so Unreal is still, in a lot of ways, the gold standard. I mean, it's not in everything, and it has competition, and sometimes companies decide to do their own thing. Electronic Arts is a big enough company, for instance, that they ultimately decided to create their own engine internally, the Frostbite engine, because they have enough game studios and enough different projects going on Mm -hmm. that they can create their own internal proprietary tech, but then treat it like a company-wide middleware. And so it's still efficient for them because they have so many teams working with Frostbite. Right. And Disney has their own engine, Panda 3D. Mm -hmm. There's a few different companies out there that do have their own specific engine. It's just that Unreal is done so well and it does so many things. Even though I have my own criticisms about it, it really is a very versatile engine. It is, I think that if developers take the engine and then properly tweak it to what their goal is Mm -hmm. and they don't sort of like leave things at default. And I think that's probably why I don't like certain implementations of it because they leave certain aspects of it at default so that it is, so it feels like other games in that respect because they don't tweak it to their own end right the engine is really good at doing what it needs to do you want seamless indoor outdoor transitions you want seamless particle effects and multiple characters running around multiple assets Mm -hmm. high rendering of textures and everything i believe thief is done in uh unreal if i remember correctly right i think so we have a computer. We can look this up. Yeah, at least the more more recent ones are. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thief, Thief is. And Thief is, it really epitomizes the strength of the Unreal Engine because you have particle effects, a lot of really good lighting effects, multiple assets moving around. You want to have seamless indoor-outdoor transitions. You want AI allowing for challenging adversaries it's a complete picture and i think it really speaks to the versatility of unreal that these tools really allow for lesser game developers who don't have the resources to create a game from scratch a triple a game or what have you they can take advantage of things that have been done before and with great tools be able to create really interesting things you can see that out there today with people who take the unreal engine and just for what happens if i throw mario into the unreal engine or i throw zelda into the unreal engine what kind of cool things do i see and you can see the power of the engine with that by just taking someone just made hyrule castle or princess total's castle Sure. And you just walk around in it and you just see, oh, that's really pretty. That's interesting. And and it can do so many different types of games. You mentioned Thief, which is mm-hmm. a stealth game. Then you have the Mass Effect games are in the Unreal Engine, which are shooters with RPG elements mixed in. The Arkham games are in the Unreal Engine. So that's a mix of a little bit of stealth with a lot of uh, freeform combo-based combat and a lot of flying and gliding around the place. All all very different types of games, really. Uh, but, I mean, they look a bit similar because they're all using the same basic kind of character modeling and whatnot, but it's very different type, types of games in their gameplay. They are all supportable in this one engine. 
uh, not always in the base form, like you said, because that's the other thing. It is it is very easily modified as well. Your AAA developer, your more adept AAA developer, is not just going to use Unreal as it is out of the box. They're going to use that as their base, but they are going to modify it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's middleware. It's not meant to be the be-all and end-all by itself, but in this day and age when AAA development is so expensive and so time-consuming. When you just need the ability to render graphics onto the screen, it allows you to concentrate on what is your gimmick for the game. What is the thing that you're trying to accomplish that no one else has been able to accomplish with the game? Exactly. So just to back up a little bit on on the logistics of the company and 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 answer some stuff that wasn't quite clear on a little earlier in the podcast, little real time researching and updating going on here. <laughs> so kind of in this time period right before Unreal starts, you have Tim Sweeney in Maryland, and he does eventually get a small office. There is a small epic office. He was working out of his parents' home, and then to stop everything from coming to his parents' home, he moved uh, into a small office in Rockville, Maryland. Very small. He hired a few people just to fill orders, just basic order fillers kind of stuff. Mark Rain is kind of the primary deal maker, but he's up in Canada too. He's up in Toronto, so he's not at the main office. He's doing that remotely. You have Cliff in California. You have the, the Dutch guy. You have James Schmaltz in Canada. You have all of these different things. And so, like I said, there isn't much, even though there is this office in Rockville that is epic, there's not really that much of a concept of an, a centralized epic. Mm-hmm. The first time they kind of get more centralized is when everyone moves up to Canada to get this Unreal thing done. Right. And so Unreal starts in 1994, like we said. 1997, where the game is dragging on and on and on and on in development, is when they finally realize that this project is getting too big. And they have to get everybody together. And so that's kind of the first time everyone comes together in Canada is 1997, Waterloo specifically. James Schmaltz is from Waterloo. They decide at that point that the games really are getting too complex and it's time to move everybody together. But nobody wants to be in Canada. James Schmaltz is happy in Canada, but by this time he's actually formed his own company called Digital Extremes. So he's working on Unreal. And he's working on that game for Epic, but he's actually his own company now, Digital Extremes. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to be joining Epic proper. He's happy in Canada, but no one else that's been brought in from all over the place is happy in Canada because it's cold up there. It's, it's kind of the same thing as the id people. The id people decided for whatever reason they wanted to work in Wisconsin. Then they were like, but wait a minute, it's cold up here. <laughs> and we don't want to go across an entire parking lot and have to drive there and warm up our car for 30 minutes. To drive five minutes. Right. But they know that they really need a permanent office. And the place they have in Rockville, Maryland, I mean, that's that's just a tiny place for filling orders. That is not a place where you can actually set up a company. So they feel, since they're coming from all over the place, that they're free to look wherever they want in the entire United States. And so they do a nationwide search, and they decide that Raleigh's the place they want to be, North Carolina. Uh, in 1998, when Epic moves to... North Carolina to Raleigh, where they're still in North Carolina today. That's that's kind of really when Epic as a traditional company is born. Obviously, Epic's existed before then, but as for far years they, before then. This is where we can say, here's a proper business building that is Epic. That's right. And they also figure after they do Unreal, 
they also figure that at this point they are they are the big company. They are the huge, massive kind of cool guys. He feels like he doesn't have to pretend he is anymore, so to speak. And so that's it's after Unreal that they drop the mega. Okay. And just become epic games. And it's basically because it, it almost sounds too over the top now. I mean, it was the kind of thing, and he's young and starting out, and it's like, I want to make myself sound big, really, really big. And now he's like, I don't need to make myself sound big anymore. Mm-hmm. We are big. I don't need to be the small, yippy dog who makes lots of noise <laughs> because there's lots of things out there, and I need to be afraid of me. Now I'm a little bit of a bigger dog. I can bark a little less. That's right. And so they, they just become epic games, which they're still epic today. They're <laughs> no, no more of that mega stuff getting involved. <laughs> so kind of the next big part of the epic story is they've got this Unreal that does very well. And they're starting to license that Unreal Engine because companies are expressing an interest in using it. One of the companies that decides that they want to use that engine is owned by a gentleman named Mike Caps. Mm-hmm. Mike Caps was, or is, he's still alive, a very smart guy and a very educated guy. He got his Bachelor's of Science in Math and Creative Writing. From uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, very fine school. He got a master's uh, in computer science from the same institution. Then, figuring that didn't leave him educated enough, he got an electrical engineering and computer science degree from MIT. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to the Naval Postgraduate School, where he served as a research assistant professor at the same time that he was getting his PhD. So he is Dr. Mike Caps, hmm. and he was very involved at the Naval Postgraduate School in networked virtual reality and simulation work. That's really what he was interested in, virtual environments and all of that kind of stuff. Very cutting edge. The final project that he did while he was serving as professor there and getting his PhD, was creating a game called America's Army. I remember this. Right. It was designed to be a recruiting tool for the military. So it was, it was a free game. It was free to play, and they would have it at recruiting stations, I think, and, and let people download it and, and whatever. And it was meant to just kind of be a way to get young guys interested in, in being in the military. They used Unreal for this. Makes sense. Yep, they licensed the Unreal Engine for this game. And so that's how Mike Caps got to know Tim Sweeney. And basically what happened is that in the period from relocating the company in 1998 into North Carolina and actually having a centralized company with a, a true team of people all working together in the same place to put out product, about 2003 or so, the company was still kind of very loosely managed because they just had one team that was never more than about 25 people. And basically, Tim Sweeney was managing the technical side of things. 
Cliff Blazinski was managing the creative side of things because he really had a knack for for the creative. And, you know, you have Mark Rain floating around, you know, making deals and whatnot as well. But that's that's basically how they did it. It was very much becoming clear in that time period, a time period when there was very much consolidation across the entire video game industry, that they couldn't really continue to function as an independent developer with just one team. You couldn't get product out fast enough to have a good steady revenue stream coming in and keep the lights on. So they decided they had to go to two teams, each making a separate game. And once you got to the point where you have two teams, you really need a little more management. And like I said, Tim Sweeney did have a knack for business. I mean, he he really did have an innate understanding of that. But he's also the lead technical guy. I mean, still today, he's the lead technical guy. He really can't manage a company once that company becomes more than just a small group of people all working together on the same project. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he knows Mike Caps because he was doing this America's Army game, and he likes Mike Caps. He's impressed with him. And so Mike Caps comes on to be the president of the company, and then they have two teams going, and they can do twice the game, and that just makes the company healthier. So that's kind of another milestone. I mean, even after they all come together in one place, they still almost don't feel like a real company in some ways. And I'm not saying that to, to belittle them because they're doing very good work and very successful work. It's just that it's still, it still just has this really small, intimate, indie feel to it. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of the point where they really, you know, this is very recently, we're talking about just a little over a decade ago, where they really become this cemented, professional, fully... How you traditionally view this kind of thing, company. Sure. That's kind of Mike Caps's role. Mike Caps is no longer with the company. He was with the company for a very long time, but he did step down in 2012. So he's retired, or did he go to a different project? Uh, he still serves on boards and and whatnot. Yeah, I mean he's not. He's it's all advisory stuff and board stuff and whatnot. So it's more uh, retirement. Well, no, because he's still very active. He's just active as a consultant, essentially. Okay. Uh, he's serving on boards. He's taking on advisory consulting roles. He's done a lot of stuff. If you look at his LinkedIn page, you can see tons of places where he's been an advisor or a board member. Or No, he's very busy. It's just that he's no longer just running a company day-to-day like he was at Epic Games. He was there from 2004 to the very beginning of 2013. Okay. and played a very big role in ramping up the company, because this is the point where the company really starts getting rather big. Kind of the last thing to talk about in terms of the company is, is that other landmark game series that they started, which was Gears of War. Mm-hmm. And that was all Cliff Blazinski. He's, he's the one that came up with that. It really came down to how he felt shooters were just kind of ridiculous. Shooters, you're running around, you're strafing left and right, and you're doing all of this, but you're just, you're running around like a loon. I mean, that's just what you're doing. In a normal standard combat situation with bullets flying, a bullet hits you, you are more or less injured or killed if more than one or two hits you, and especially if one of them hits you in a vital area. You get hit in the head, you're gone. (laughs) You get hit in the chest. You're probably gone. And there had certainly been some games before that that had some location-based 
damage, Goldeneye being a, a very good example of that, mm -hmm. headshotting with that sniper rifle. Yeah, but still, you're dealing with the, the guy just sort of runs out there. I'm Doom Guy. I'm running out there. <laughs> I'm shooting everything. And come hell or what may, I'm amorphously there. Mm -hmm, sure. And can take all the fireballs I want as long as I drink this med kit. And, and while that's obvious on some level, it's not something that from a design perspective you're necessarily thinking about. And it was playing paintball that got Cliff to really think about that. You know, he played some paintball and was like, you know what? When you get hit with one of these little paintballs, this hurts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure some of you have played paintball. I mean, paintball is all cover-based. <laughs> you're just like real combat would be. I mean, you're trying to move up slowly, you know, with covering fire and, and moving between various pieces of cover to mm -hmm. kind of outflank and outmaneuver the guys on the other side. It was playing paintball and kind of coming to this realization. I mean, I'm sure on some level he already knew this, but just to have it literally right in his face that this is ridiculous that in all of these shooter games, you know, people are just running around that caused him to be like, yeah, let's create a shooter with a cover system. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of games that did cover before Gears of War, just like, just like anything. Someone's it's, done it before, yeah. but this is the case where someone really perfected it and really popularized it. Exactly. Because before Gears of War, you basically didn't have cover in games. Now, now everything has cover pretty much to one degree or another. They're mm -hmm. not all as hardcore cover-based shooters as Gears of War is, but pretty much if, if there's a shooting game, there's this idea that you can run to cover and hide behind cover. And the other big thing, of course, is, is the roadie run, because there had been other games that maybe had cover that you could go behind, but there wasn't necessarily this move that you could make that, that they call the roadie run, where you're dashing you know, from piece to piece, mm -hmm. you know, moving up to these different pieces of cover. And so Gears of War is really where that entire concept came together. And that was, that was in its own way, almost as, as revolutionary as, as Doom. I mean, it's not quite as revolutionary because games like Doom came up with the whole kind of 3D shooter concept first. Gears of War obviously is third person, not first person like Doom is, but the gameplay is still very similar. That's still bigger on the whole because it's coming up. It's the one that popularizes this whole thing to begin with and, and Deathmatch and all of that. But cover is really almost as big a revelation mm -hmm. to, to the shooter scene as something like Doom was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it really helps develop shooters to being just not, I am Thunk the shooter going force and shooting everything. You can have different degrees of that. You can have like Gears of War where I'm advancing down and strategically trying to do this. You can have games like Deus Ex where you have a little bit of exploration, a little bit of stealth and cover going on as you're trying to take out whatever. Or you can have something like Mass Effect, which mm -hmm. is first and foremost a role-playing game, but it also has elements of a shooter mixed in with a role-playing game. and it has a cover system as well that was kind of kind of janky in Mass Effect 1 but you know really felt pretty good in Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3 all of course made with the Unreal Engine <laughs> that's right <laughs> obviously you know Gears of War that's that's the other big one Unreal and Gears of War are the things that they're really known for i mean their shareware stuff obviously was 
was well known in its day in certain circles and was successful for them in its day, but it was more derivative. Mm -hmm. So really what they're known for today is, is those two games. And now, of course, they've gone over almost entirely to engine design. They don't do much game development anymore. I think that's become such a, an important component for them. Plus, Cliff Lazinski left the company. He was feeling kind of burned out and left the company. Mm -hmm. He was kind of their major creative force. I mean, all along there, he was co-developer of Unreal with Schmaltz. He was the lead developer on Gears of War. Jazz Jackrabbit, which was their biggest hit before they started getting into the 3D games, that was his. I mean, he was the real creative force at the company, and he's no longer there. Mm -hmm. Gears of War obviously still exists as a franchise, but it's being done by other studios for Microsoft now, because Microsoft owns the IP, because Microsoft published the Gears of War games. Because remember, I mean, they published shareware, but other than the shareware stuff, Epic Games was not a publisher. Right. They, they required, needed another company. Right. And they're an independent developer. And they're still an independent developer, which, as we talked about at the end of the It episode, that is just such a rarity anymore in the AAA console space. Yeah. And the only reason they can survive is because everyone uses their engine and they constantly develop and perfect it. The Unreal Engine 4 is fairly recently came out within the last few years. That's right. They adapted to each new generation, and they've, they've come up with some more flexible pricing models to allow more people to use it, uh, I think in part because of Unity. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not as up uh, for this podcast on kind of the middleware wars and that kind of thing. Uh, so I don't know all, all the details there, but basically when engines like Unity came along that were free that required Epic to rethink themselves a little bit because it was always fairly expensive. But you knew you were getting the best, and of course it would be constantly updated and improved. Now they have a more flexible pricing scheme because there is pressure, especially in the indie scene, from, from other engines. But yeah. they are still obviously very relevant. Unreal 4 is still being used by so many developers. And... They're still one of the, uh, the gold standards, obviously. But as a result of creative talent like Cliff leaving, mm -hmm. they are a company that it seems like is more involved with that engine side of things now than they are in making games. It's almost like they came full circle. You said originally that Tim wanted to create tools for databases and really business software it's almost like now he's doing that he's making that business software but for game he's making the software that game developers need in order to make games and that is the unreal engine absolutely and while they have not given up game development entirely they have created a couple in in the last few years it's not like Valve that, you know, no longer will ever make Half-Life 2 Episode 3 or Half-Life 3. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell everybody that, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they still make a game every so often. Uh, especially, they work a lot these days with a Polish company called People Can Fly uh, and kind of do joint game development with them a lot of the time. They're, they're still making games, but it's... A lot more of that international thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They've always had that, that international uh, bent to them. 
So they still make games occasionally, but it's really that Unreal Engine that drives them. And like you said, it all comes kind of back to Tim Sweeney, technical genius, but unlike, say, John Carmack, a technical genius that puts tools first. And, and that's, that's how you create a company like Epic. Still very successful today. And one of the few independent developers left. That's right. Alrighty then. And that pretty much covered Epic. Where shall we delve into next time? Well, as you know, we normally try to do a couple of console things, a couple of arcade things, a couple of computer game things, kind of try to hit all the areas, never dwelling too long on one. We like to bounce around. That's right. Just to keep it fresh and interesting. Or hopefully so. But uh, now I think maybe we can do something that combines all of those areas all at once. And that's uh, the history of the Atari brand. We've talked a lot about them. Yes, because as we've uh, kind of delved into, we've delved into little portions of it here and there. But the Atari brand has a ridiculously convoluted history. Because there were multiple companies that held the brand and the rights in various areas, sometimes at the same time. And it's bounced around all over the place. And people that are kind of savvy to video game history already, I think probably most of our listeners understand some of the distinctions between Jack Trammell's Atari and Nolan Bushnell's Atari and, and the French Atari and all of this. But a lot of the general public don't. And a lot of people don't realize that that the company that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney incorporated in 1972 has almost nothing, essentially nothing, to do with the Atari that exists today, which is a French company, and they have the rights to all most of those old Atari properties. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is a, a link in terms of the chain of custody of the IP, but in terms of being companies completely, completely different. And that is easily a topic that can fill an entire podcast. So why don't we delve into the history of that good old Atari brand? All the mysteries of Atari. Alrighty then, we will cover Atari next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.